Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unconfirmed, the show that reveals how the marquee names in crypto are reacting to the week's top headlines and gets the inside scoop on what they see on the horizon. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto five years ago and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full time. Unchained and Unconfirmed are now published as videos. If you're not yet subscribed to the Unchained YouTube channel, head to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Join Hack Adam 5, a two-week Cosmos virtual hackathon to hack on inner blockchain communication and be amongst the winners of a $50,000 prize pool valued in Adam. Visit 5.hackadam.org. Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee for all crypto purchases. Download the Crypto.com app today. Today's guest is Jake Bruckman, founder and CEO of CoinFund. Welcome, Jake. Hi, Laura. Nice to see you again. Thanks again for having me. Everyone's been talking about NFTs or non-fungible tokens this week. For those in the audience who aren't sure what those are, if you remember CryptoKitties, which were unique collectible digital cats, and I still think they exist, that's just one example. Jake, can you define what a non-fungible token is? And then we can dive into why there's so much chatter about them now. Absolutely. I mean, the simple definition of a non-fungible token is a token that represents a unique asset. We're used to cryptocurrencies where we have many units that are all worth the same. Like if I had one Ether, Laura, and you had one Ether, those are, you know, those are the same value. But if I had one CryptoKitty and you had another CryptoKitty, they actually might be valued totally differently. Your CryptoKitty might be really scarce and valuable. And my CryptoKitty might be, you know, run run of the mill and common. And so non-fungible tokens, they really represent this, this, uh, this uh, asset class of unique assets that's out there. And so what's been going on with them recently? Why has there been so much chatter? Well, you know, as someone who's been watching this space for, for a very, very long time, for, from the, really the very beginning, uh, when rare Pepe uh, images were <laughs> started to be traded on Counterparty, it seems like about a million years ago. That um, was a long time ago. That was before CryptoKitties. <laughs> I think what's what's actually happening is that the the space of non fungible assets is maturing a little bit, and what we've seen is actually a little bit of interesting early conversion of digital creators who are creating art and collectibles and other kinds of NFT assets, and they're starting to trade them on marketplaces, and the volume on these marketplaces uh, is going up a bit, and um, related to that, I think investors have matured a little bit in their thinking about the NFT space, and they've started to position and and, uh, make investments, uh, venture style mostly so far, uh, in companies that are are in the NFT space. And it's been very exciting. 
Yeah. And there's even a little bit of the yield farming thing going on with NFTs. So I think that's another reason people are getting excited because even though the craze has died down from the fever pitch, I still see people interested in it. Um, but you actually wrote a really interesting blog post about NFTs and you had like another definition that you gave, which is you said that NFTs were liquid intellectual property for digital content. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, so this is exactly, um, you know, what I've been sort of saying is like most people have so far brushed off the NFT spaces, you know, people trading funny pictures on, you know, on blockchains. Um, and if you sort of thought experiment a little bit and you, and you start to understand a little bit of uh, kind of the financial use cases that NFTs enable, you start to realize that if you take this view of NFTs as strong ownership of digital content, um, things get quite interesting. And the first thing to observe is that there's just like a lot of different kinds of digital content. Certainly there's art, certainly there's collectibles, um, but there's also 3D models or metaverse assets. There's also stock photography. There's also blog posts that people write and, and then monetize through syndication. There's music on which artists earn royalty. There's movies which get distributed on platforms like Netflix and so on and so forth. And if you start to count up the number of digital objects on the internet and in the world, you actually start piling up quite an asset class of, of objects. And if you start to think of NFTs as being kind of a very fitting technology to denote ownership of these objects, to denote the royalty streams of these objects, um, then you start to get away from a little bit of the speculative aspects like, oh, I buy a crypto kitty, I'm going to you know, flip it to somebody else later. And you start to get into the more fundamentally valued aspects of, of non-fungible assets, which is like, hey, maybe I'll own the revenue stream to Taylor, song, Taylor Swift's song or album or something like that. Or uh, maybe I'll own the movie rights to a certain like digital character that I'll be able to license out. And when you take that view of NFTs as liquid intellectual property, what you start to realize is that most intellectual property doesn't live on secondary markets today. It's kind of illiquid. And what blockchain enables is the liquidity of these markets. And so the reason that I'm super excited about NFTs as an investor is I think that we're about to unlock a whole lot of value that previously has been in these non-traded like paper rights but it's about to get a lot more digital. So I have so many questions about what you said, but before we get into those, I do just want to make one comment, which is I noticed in your blog post that you had a chart of different kinds of content and one of them said written content and underwritten, it was like movies and videos. And I was like, what about articles and eBooks? As a writer, I just had to point out that you missed right there because I would not call videos and movies written content. And, um, and also like even just now in your example, when you mentioned blog posts, I was like, there are professional writers too who like make a living writing. Um, <laughs> but anyway, okay. So we were talking, you were talking about NFTs from the creator's perspective, but I wanted to ask also, so, Right now, as a consumer, I already have, you know, multiple libraries of music that I can tap, like, you know, music I can stream from Apple or Spotify or Pandora, or SoundCloud, etc. Or, you know, I can go onto these different stock photography sites or whatever. So what's in it for the end consumer? Like, what would get them to make a switch? Well, because it basically um, democratizes the ownership in 
uh, in this kind of content, right? So if, if you think about a stock photography site today, like Getty Images or Shutterstock or something like that, I mean, you're talking about a private business, right, that is facilitating a marketplace between stock photographers and purchasers of stock photography, like designers who are making websites and, and so on and so forth. Um, and this marketplace model is exactly the thing that blockchain uh, technology, in my opinion, was really born to, uh, to disrupt. And, and what basically what can happen is we can replace that proprietary provisioning of the marketplace with a decentralized smart contract based system, which is exactly what uh, marketplaces like, like recently Rarible uh, have done. And we can give the ownership and the governance of that system to the community of people who are participants in that marketplace. And that's a really, really powerful value proposition that blockchains in general, I think, give to uh, the world. Interesting. Okay. But, but like, how would that work exactly? Because so, you know, I'm, as I'm sure you're well aware, it's very easy to create a screenshot of a piece of d- digital visual art. Like if I go on the CryptoKitty site, I can just create a screenshot of a CryptoKitty. Same with a photo. I can pirate a song or a movie. Uh, there, you know, I know writers get upset. I get upset if people make copies of my articles or try to get a PDF of an ebook or whatever. So how would creators of NFTs protect against copies and actually make money from these so-called non-fungible tokens when it's so easy to create a copy of them? Yeah. So, so again, I, I think like when, when someone purchases uh, an, an NFT, and maybe that's not like totally true today, but I do think this is exactly where uh, the space is headed. They're not buying the image, in my opinion. What they're buying is the intellectual property rights to the image. And so if you think about the Mona Lisa, the Mona Lisa lives in the Louvre in France, in Paris. Um, it's worth $800 million. But of course, I can go online and download a picture of the Mona Lisa and put it on my wall. That doesn't mean that I can resell that picture for $800 million. Um, so why is it that the Mona Lisa is worth that much, but a, but a copy is not? Well, in that case, this is physical art, right? And it, it sits in a museum and people go to that museum every day, you know, millions of people go every year. And of course, they all pay to see the Mona Lisa. So the Mona Lisa has a, has a revenue street, right, that could be, that could be valued and, and figured out. Um, how you enforce that in the digital realm becomes a really interesting question. And I, and I think, um, I, I think that, that existing law and property rights are perfectly acceptable ways of enforcing um, you know, in, in enforcing this, the, 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 the actual legal rights of, of these works. Now, what's super interesting is that um, projects like Aragon uh, are working on this idea of a global digital jurisdiction and global on-chain dispute resolution. Uh, if you've ever seen Aragon Court, if you've seen Aragon Agreements, those um, speak to how we might be able to ensure and enforce off-chain property rights um, in the future using blockchain technology also. So the short answer is, short term, I think it's just we're going to allow creators to give the purchaser of their NFT legal property rights. And in the long term, those property rights might actually be enforced on-chain. Wow. Okay. There's just so much to unpack there. Um, so we're going to, but let's, let's take a commercial break first. So first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. 
Inter-Blockchain Communication will be launching on Cosmos soon. Join Hack Atom 5, the two-week Cosmos virtual hackathon, where you can play with inter-blockchain communication before it is launched and be amongst the winners of a $50,000 prize pool, valued in Atom. Hack Atom 5, coming soon to a dev post near you this October. Visit 5.hackatom.org. That's F-I-V-E dot H-A-C-K-A-T-O-M dot O-R-G. Back to my conversation with Jake Bruckman. So <laughs> I have interviewed uh, Luis Quente of Aragon. I you know, understand how that works. I find it super fascinating. But I would imagine that for this sort of digital jurisdiction to have any kind of teeth would be that they would need to get sign-on from actual physical jurisdictions, like the physical jurisdiction where the Mona Lisa exists. So, you know, I I don't know if they can just sort of like claim that they have this jurisdiction, right? And so I just imagine that, let's say, I mean, actually, the Mona Lisa isn't a great example, but let's start with like some of the, 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 because there's been like these different crypto art things I've been seeing that there are these auctions and they're selling actually for fair bit of money, like, you know, 7,000 bucks or higher, which, you know, for something that can be copied and spread everywhere all over the internet, I'm a little bit like, why would you pay? So I don't know. Anyway, the point is, especially in this case where you don't know if the legal, um, you know, if the jurisdiction will, will honor uh, kind of this idea that you are the one who owns this. So how do you guys plan to uh, kind of get around that issue? I mean, I think, look, again, we're, we're super early and, you know, to be, to be totally honest, like no uh, NFT platform has yet gotten to the point where they're actually integrating legal rights. But I actually don't think it's that, um, it, it's that unlikely. I think like, you know, you basically kind of agree on the jurisdiction where the creator is, is operating and uh, where the buyer is operating and you kind of agree to the set of rules. And I think you'll find that um, they're definitely... Um, kind of default property rights that will come into effect in those jurisdiction, uh, in, in that jurisdiction. But but more specifically, I think what you really want is the creator, and this is probably going to be facilitated by the platform. Um, just like we have an open source today, you'll sort of choose a license. And this license will say things like, um, hey, I, I give the buyer the right to um, resell this work or modify this work or, um, you know, uh, sell the rights to this work to a movie or another artist or creator might, might opt to not do that. They might say like, this work is provided as is, but you know, you have strong ownership of it. You have the right to lend it, to, to make a return on it. Um, you know, to, to create a royalty stream for yourself on it, but I don't want you to modify it. Right. And all of those kinds of property rights, um, might just be enumerated in a legal contract. And there's actually um, a, a number of precedents in blockchain today where people are combining legal jurisdictions and, uh, and sort of traditional entities and contracts together with tokens. If, you, if, you, if you're curious on that topic, check out what Open Law is doing with the LAO, on-chain DAO venture funds. Um, there also have been ICOs where uh, by purchasing tokens, you're also... Uh, signing a legal agreement in a certain jurisdiction, and the same kind of kind of legal and uh, legal technology can be applied to to NFTs. It's just we we need a company in the market to do that, and I think that will happen uh, fairly soon. 
Yeah, I think the question of whether or not those agreements will be um, enforced as they are written, it probably comes down to the courts, but I am not a legal person. So there's a lawyer watching this who's like, Laura got that wrong. Let me know. Um, so I, just to go back to some earlier comments you made, you were talking about, you know, this ability to, um, have fractional ownership and governance by communities. So, um, you know, you, you gave some examples, but like, where do you think this could go in the future? Well, like I said, I mean, I think that um, the core value proposition that blockchain technology gives to marketplaces is, is it removes the middleman. It removes this sort of proprietary need to extract profit from the marketplace. And, um, you know, and, and what it can do is it can redirect that uh, ownership of the marketplace to the community and using blockchain and also in a very efficient way. So, you know, I always like to say, like, you can buy someone's attention by paying them money, but it's very hard to like buy their loyalty. The way that you buy people's loyalty is you give them, you know, you make them a partner, you give them equity in the firm. And I think what these, um, what liquidity mining has shown recently in DeFi and what volume mining, uh, which is what Rarible, uh, an NFT marketplace has really been the first uh, project to, to showcase in, in the market. Like, I, what- I don't know what volume mining is. Oh, sure. Um, so, so when Rarible launched, they decided to launch... And with by the way, they're an product. NFT marketplace for people who don't know. That's right. Rarible is an NFT marketplace, which was the first NFT marketplace to launch with a governance token. And when you, um, when you transact in the marketplace, when you either make a purchase or make a sale as a creator, you're also um, drop tokens in a weekly airdrop. And it's not that you're just getting paid for transacting on the platform, which is what I was referring to as volume mining. It's also that you're becoming a partial owner of the platform. You, uh, by holding the token, you get governance rights in the, you know, in the voting system. Um, in the future, you might be able to pay commission fees with this token. You might be able to um, stake it and, and do things like that um, uh, in future use cases, right? So, so this idea of like community ownership of the platform, I think is a very strong value proposition for users and participants. And you also wrote in your blog post about um, something about how fractionalized tokens can be traded, crowdfunded, and incorporated into other financialization schemes to manage risk. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what that meant. Was that like using them as collateral or what, you know, what are some examples? Absolutely. So once you recognize, or if you recognize that NFTs are, um, you know, a financial asset class, then you start to realize that you need financial infrastructure to manage this financial asset class, just like you do in fungible tokens. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like in, you know, DeFi NFT crossovers, for example, there's a company called the Neftify where you can deposit uh, your NFT and, and get a loan against that collateral because someone actually values that NFT. Um, another example is uh, fractionalizing ownership in an NFT. There's a cool project called, arc.gallery, and they created this thing called Wrapped CryptoPunks. So imagine, Laura, you see a, a CryptoPunk as a kind of blockchain collectible, and imagine you see one and it's like too expensive. It's like $5,000. What you could do is you could start a crowdfunding page with your friends, and as soon as you crowdfund $5,000, all of you together go and buy the CryptoPunk, and you can co-own it together. And the way that you own co-own it is you get an ERC-20 token that represent partial ownership in the collectible. 
All right. So, so if you contribute like 1000 out of the 5,000, you'll earn or you'll own 20%, uh, you know, of the asset. Um, and so those are two examples of financialization schemes uh, that you could apply to this new asset class. And then once you do own that, um, that 20% of the CryptoPunk, then what can you do with it? You can like license it to be used in a video or something and make money that way or? Well, so this is where, you know, philosophically, um, I've been thinking a lot about like, what, what are the implications of, you know, uh, fractionalization? Uh, but generally speaking, that means that if you, like whatever uh, decision that, that the owners of the asset collectively make, like let's say that you and I co-own an asset and we want to like sell it. Well, that means that the proceeds of that sale will go proportionally to us, proportionally to our ownership of it. Oh, okay. Okay. So it's just about owning and selling, buying and selling. Yeah. But there could be like other, you know, there could be other decisions that, um, that we might want to make as, as asset holders, right? We might, a, a museum might come to us and say, Jake, Laura, will you, um, lend us your crypto punk to put on a uh, display in an art show? And we might say, yes, but you know, but you have to pay us $10 or something, you know, for the privilege of doing that. And again, we, we, we will split that revenue stream. Uh, between us. Okay. $2 a piece. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So there are a few NFTs that are also combining with DeFi, which is pretty interesting, like Avagochis, which are a combination of Aave, the lending platform, and Tomagochis, which are these digital pets. And um, the Avagochi will actually earn interest. And then Rarible has this like Y NFT, which is like an NFT-based insurance cover Underwritten by Nexus. I actually didn't fully really understand that, but can you just talk a little bit about this trend and where you think what they're calling NFT Fi, where you think it could go? Yeah, well, so so I love the idea of of Avagachi um, because it's precisely this way of combining this really like fun, um, you know, very grassroots, very art artsy and cutesy and like collectibles focused side of the blockchain space with the much more serious um, kind of financial uh, application side of, of the blockchain space. And like the one thing I take away from all these like efforts that look a little bit cute today is that it educates a larger number of people about finance. Finance historically has always been, you know, something in the realm of, you know, academia and, 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 um, and industry and, and these days, with the advent of the internet, and especially with the advent of blockchain, we're being like a lot more social about finance. Um, finance is spreading. Like if you've been reading about like how the younger generations have been trading on Robinhood, right? And so when I look at Avagachi, I think this is like a great way of starting to educate, you know, younger folks about what finance is and how it could be used as a tool. So Avagachi is, you know, a combination of collectibles and, and on-chain uh, lending. There's also a project recently called Meme, uh, where you would you, st- you stake a, a, a token and you earn these things called pineapples, and then you can redeem the pineapples for rare limited edition artworks that they've created, which is very interesting. Um, you know, and there's a ton of thinking about, like, NFTs as a generally less liquid asset class than fungibles. How do we make them more liquid, right? And um, this area of NFT Fi or NFT times DeFi, whatever you want to call it, um, you know, it, 
is doing a lot of work to to make that asset class more liquid and, and, and sort of more accessible to users. All right. Well, we're going to have to see where this goes. It's definitely an interesting trend. I don't know how... Um, how much I <laughs> uh, believe it's going to take off, but we'll see. I, I could see it happening maybe in gaming. As a creator, well, I'm definitely interested. Um, but yeah, I, I just, I want, as you can, can tell, I, I have you, a lot of questions. Yeah, go ahead. Can I give you an idea? Um, sure. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a bold prediction. And my bold prediction is that there's a very good chance that the NFT space can get on par with, with what's happening in DeFi. And let me tell you why I think that. Um, if you've been following Zapper, Zapper is sort of the premier wallet for DeFi opportunities that's out there. In um, like recently on Twitter, they published their August numbers um, from their website, and what those numbers showed is that they had about twenty thousand daily active users and about three hundred thousand monthly active users. And most people were kind of surprised. They were like, "We thought, you know, there was like a hundred thousand users in DeFi. We thought maybe there's yeah. two hundred thousand." you know, monthly users of DeFi, but we did not think 300,000. And of course it doesn't, it doesn't count everybody. There's probably a bit more. Now, if you take a look at um, Rarible, uh, Rarible has been doing really well lately with the token. They've gotten a lot of attention over the last couple of weeks. These guys are doing about a hundred thousand monthly active users in the last month. And so, and that doesn't even count all of the other marketplaces for, for NFTs. It doesn't count, you know, super rare and maker's place and known origin and mint base and everything else. And what you start to get a sense of is that um, attention wise, there, it, there's not a lot of growth that might have to happen in NFTs for the number of people in NFTs to get on par with the number of people in DeFi. And that's kind of an amazing fact that probably most people, you know, don't, don't, don't quite, um, don't quite realize. And right. I'll tell you why I think that is. I think that's because this idea of, you know, trading digital art or collectibles is, it's a very um, natural idea to people who aren't naturally tech and finance focused. So if you go look at the DeFi Mm. people, they're all putting the Y token into the Z token, into the X pool, into that thing. And I love doing that. Like I'm a finance nerd, but most people, they don't have the slightest idea of how to do that. But if you tell them, hey, you could go online and buy a piece piece of art that's actually a very natural thing for them to do. And so I think the NFT space is building a lot of customer affinity and early mainstream adoption that DeFi just won't do as quickly. Huh. That's, that's fascinating. I, I can, yeah, I'll say your theory sounds plausible. (laughs) Um, Clearly this is a space I need to explore a little bit more because I was a little bit, confused this week. I was like, why is this all taking off? What's going on? Um, but also I spent the last weekend at the beach. So maybe, <laughs> maybe it just wasn't on Twitter enough. Um, <laughs> anyway. All right. Well, this has been so fun. Uh, thanks for coming on Unconfirmed. Yeah. Thank you for having me, Laura. Don't forget. Next up is the weekly news recap. Stick around for this week in crypto after this short break. How much in fees are you paying for crypto purchases? Now, Crypto.com is waiving the 3.5% credit card fee when you buy crypto. Apart from crypto purchases, you can also get a great deal on food and grocery shopping with Crypto.com. Get up to 10% back when you pay with your MCO Visa card. No card? Use the Crypto.com app to buy gift cards for up to 20% back. Download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. 
Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. First headline: National banks can hold stablecoin reserves. Big news regarding fiat-backed stablecoins such as USDC and Tether. On Monday, the Office of the Controller of the Currency said that federally chartered banks can hold the reserves for such coins. Although stablecoin issuers have been using U.S. banks for years, the regulatory environment surrounding such use has been murky. The OCC guidance has now made it clear that federally regulated banks should feel comfortable providing this to stablecoin issuers as long as they are backed on a one-to-one basis with fiat currencies. Publishing concurrently, the Securities and Exchange Commission released a statement from its FinHub unit, which focuses on digital assets, noting that certain stablecoins might not be securities under federal law, but each case would be decided on quote a facts and circumstances determination. Presumably, fiat-backed stablecoins are not securities, but from previous cases such as Basecoin slash Basis, algorithmic ones could be. Next headline. Is the Uniswap token a security? In the latest twist to the Uniswap slash SushiSwap saga, Uniswap went live with its token Uni last week. Immediately, crypto lawyers began saying they believe Uni looks like an unregistered security. First, it was airdropped, and airdrops quote may not spare you from securities regulation, according to a 2017 Coin Center blog post. Which Niraj Agrawal, its communications officer, felt compelled to tweet out the night of the Uniswap airdrop. Second, as the price has shot up, people may be interested in obtaining Uni with the expectation of a profit rather than to utilize the network. And the value of Uni could be influenced by the efforts of an identifiable party, Uniswap, and that would trigger the final prong of the so-called Howey test, which determines whether or not an investment contract is a security. Greg Lisa, a partner at Hogan Levels, Hogan Levels, who works on a case involving Ether Delta, a crypto exchange that billed itself as decentralized, but which the SEC determined was not, said to the block, "Quote: This really looks like a blimp crash. It can be seen from a mile away. The biggest question is when, not whether, the SEC and other regulators or law enforcement are going to say slash do something about this." On a related note. Two bipartisan bills introduced to Congress this week could clarify how the SEC and the Commodities Futures Trading Commission handle tokens, since tokens can sometimes start out as securities but evolve into commodities once their networks are sufficiently decentralized. One bill, called the Securities Clarity Act, would explicitly define SEC jurisdiction to token pre-sales, as Coin Center puts it: "Quote, a non-security is being sold, the future decentralized token." But it comes with a contractual promise from the issuer, which is the promise to build the token network as specified, so that tokens will actually do something of value in the future. The second bill proposes a way for the CFTC to regulate U.S.-based crypto exchanges, and would give crypto exchanges the option to register as a digital commodity exchange or DCE. And any pre-sold tokens, meaning those that started out as securities, could only be traded on these CFTC-registered exchanges, but only after the network is live, a token is sold to the public there, and at that point, it would lose its security status. Next headline: High gas fees have forced Unilogin to shut down. Unilogin co-founder Alex Vandesan announced that the DAP onboarding pl- solution is closing up shop due to high gas fees on Ethereum. With the cost of onboarding a new user soaring to over one hundred and thirty dollars on some days, 
Although the provider considered a pivot to a layer two DeFi-focused wallet, it would have required an almost total restart of the project. Unilogin has decided instead to return its remaining cash to investors, adding that even if gas prices were to improve and its ongoing costs were lessened, it still can't imagine a way forward because Ethereum's high gas fees do not appear to be a temporary problem. In related news. A progress report on EIP-1559, Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559, which promises a significant change to Ethereum's fee market, was posted on Wednesday. First proposed by Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin in 2019, the transaction pricing mechanism for EIP-1559 would offer a, quote, fixed per-block network fee that is burned and dynamically expands and contracts block sizes to deal with transient congestion. The main concern is that since EIP-1559 could stretch blocks up to three times their current size, any denial-of-service attack could now be three times as effective. Next up, Analytics Roundup. Dune Analytics secures $2 million in funding. Dragonfly Capital led a seed funding round in Ethereum-centric analytics platform Dune Analytics, which enables people to create their own charts and dashboards and share them with others. For those of you who haven't yet tried Duna Analytics, I highly recommend this resource, which a lot of my own sources use to explain things to me. Next up in the roundup, Block Native announces Mempool Explorer. Calling it a missing link in the ecosystem, Block Native unveiled Mempool Explorer on Wednesday, which enables people to, for instance, detect when more than $10,000 of liquidity moves into or out of a specific protocol or to find out when someone's smart contract is party to a pending transaction and more. If you recall the story by Dan Robinson of Paradigm about the $10,000 that he tried to rescue from a smart contract but could not because a bot spotted his rescue attempt in the mempool and stole the money first, that helps in explaining how this tool could be useful. Next, DeFi Roundup. MakerDAO will not compensate victims of March's flash crash. After initially deciding in early April to refund washed-out investors from March's Black Thursday crash, on Tuesday, larger MKR holders dominated a vote and decided against making whole those same investors who lost a cumulative $8.33 million. Only 38 unique votes were cast, the equivalent of 8.7% of all MKR token holders. Participants were incentivized to vote against any compensation because additional printing of MKR would dilute the value of their holdings. TBTC is now live. The TBTC network, which launched earlier this year but quickly pulled the plug, has relaunched, quote, with unprecedented security measures in place, allowing users to deposit and redeem Bitcoin in DeFi without intermediaries. Users can now exchange BTC for TBTC, which is an ERC-20 token for use on DeFi platforms. At a one-to-one ratio, quote, each TBTC is fully backed and matched by at least one Bitcoin held in reserve. YAM looks forward after relaunch. After a wild three-day launch and then crash in August, last Friday, DeFi token YAM relaunched. By Monday, it had its first rebase with $571,000 in YUSD added to its treasury. Next headline, a new alternative to buy back and burn. 
In a blog post, Joel Manegro of Placeholder Capital examines the common buyback and burn model and points out that though this model works for currencies, it has pitfalls, particularly for governance tokens. He writes, quote, when it comes to capital assets like governance tokens, issuance is key to capitalization and burning can get in the way of growing fundamental value. He defines currency as an asset whose value comes from exchange, such as to consumer goods or to services. However, an asset used for governance or equity participation is capital. He cites MKR and ZRX as examples of networks that generate income in ETH, but then redistribute value via their governance tokens. He says, if you draw an analogy to buybacks in the equities world, stock buybacks typically do not result in shares being destroyed. They tend to be held by the company as treasury shares and just reduce the number of outstanding shares. On the flip side, issuance is how a crypto network such as a DAO or a protocol can obtain the resources it needs to scale. He says, quote, this is why tools like mining, proof of stake, and liquidity rewards can work so well. There's far more upside to smart issuance than there is in clutching to scarcity. He then proposes a balancer smart pool. Balancer is one of those automated market makers, and he proposes a smart pool that would be 10% ETH and 90% of a capital token that could function as what he calls, quote, an automatic buyback machine, token issuance pool, and liquidity provider since it would automatically rebalance, rebalance by selling excess ETH or the capital token to retain a specific ratio, and that would function as a buyback. His post gets even more in the weeds than this. Um, hopefully I haven't lost you all, but it's definitely worth checking out for creative ways to provide liquidity in a token. Next headline, how to value the Wi-Fi token. The Wi-Fi token, which governs Yearn or Yearn, was launched with the disclaimer that the token itself, quote, has zero value. However, investors disagreed with that initial assessment and FYI, limited to only 30,000 tokens, has reached a price as high as $44,000 since its launch. But how should such a wide-ranging crypto network be valued? The newly formed Mechanism Capital did a deep dive into potential valuation methods. First, Dismissing the usefulness of total value locked, which is a common metrics metric, as well as price-to-earnings ratio. The article then makes a case for two future-oriented valuation models, forward price-to-earning and discounted cash flow. It presents base, conservative, and aggressive forecasts for the price of Wi-Fi, with the bear case being for a token that's worth $15,800, and the aggressive case for a much higher price token, $315,500. Fun bits! Jack Dorsey to speak Friday at the Oslo Freedom Forum. I realize this is somewhat last minute, but if you are listening the morning that this episode drops, you can see Twitter and Square CEO Jack Dorsey speak at the Oslo Freedom Forum. The prominent Bitcoin proponent will be on stage, as it were, because the conference, of course, is virtual this year, at 10.45 a.m. Eastern, and the conference will be live streamed on the Oslo Freedom Forum's YouTube page. All right. Thanks for tuning in. To learn more about Jake, NFTs, and Rurable, be sure to check out the links in the show notes of this episode. Don't forget, you can now watch video recordings of the show on the Unchained YouTube channel. Go to youtube.com slash C slash Unchained Podcast and subscribe today. Unconfirmed is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Bossy Baker, and the team at CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening.